Good morning. So I do live in Bell Fountain. Since we were all a little let down last week, I'll try and give it a go in my Scottish accent today. And just give me one second. I normally use Apple things, and this is not an Apple thing. And I may be young, but I still get confused. Okay. Oh. All right. So it's good to be here this morning. I have uh, had quite a bit of time to kind of mull over uh, what we'll be looking at today since Dan had let me know like three weeks ago. So a couple days ago, my brain was all scattered with a thousand different thoughts of trying to compile them and organize them. And for some people, that's much easier than others. I'm really good at getting thoughts. I'm really bad at putting them in an order because... There's a difference between the, the last time I was I, given an opportunity to speak. I feel as though there was a, the, the passage in Lamentations where I was able to just really grasp uh, what I was trying to portray and really felt more as though I had come to a, you know, a solid conclusion and that my life was standing on, on this rock that I was speaking. And God's kind of, th- this morning in this passage, it's one of those passages where uh, there's been a continual kind of dealing with God over some of uh, the things in His Word and, and a weeding out of things in my life and a trying of God bringing me into His, uh, His likeness. And so... If you look through the Gospels, we're going to look through the Gospel of Luke this morning in chapter 14, if you want to turn there, in verse 25 through 38. But if you look through the Gospels, this is kind of one of the familiar passages where Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, is always giving calls to uh, Himself. He said He came to call the sinners to Himself. And you see a varying uh, uh, call of Christ through the Gospels. And it takes different forms. And sometimes it's kind of hard for us to kind of put all these things together to make sense of all the different imagery and illustrations and, and ways that Christ calls men to Himself. But nonetheless, this, this is what He does. He came to call people to Himself. And he give, He's given the church, the apostles, and those that follow the, the kind of privilege and, and responsibility to go forth with His Word and call men to Christ. And sometimes over the, the centuries, people have come up with a whole lot of different ways to call men to Jesus. And 2,000 years has given a lot of time for men to kind of input their own thoughts and come up with some really bad ways and unbiblical ways. And it's good for us to kind of come to a passage like this and be reminded of Christ calling men to Himself because I think there's, if you look into to much of, of a lot of the commentaries that I've that I read and a lot of uh, sermons I've heard and, and people I've been taught by, there's this kind of misconception in today's day and age where in Christianity there's a, a, a some of the calls of Jesus seem just a little bit too firm. And you look at some of the passages in the in the in the letters of the New Testament, and they seem to be a little bit. Uh, less costly, if I can use that, that word. 
And so we've tried to, some have tried to come and, and to make a division in the Gospels of what it means to be a disciple and just what it means to, to have salvation in Christ. And there's, a, there's an attempt to make a distinction. When Jesus calls someone to be a disciple, He's not calling someone to say, hey, is this cut for me? Nice. Was this up here last time? I got a whole time, not even realize that. Thank you. Uh, and, and there's a distinction that's made by some to try and, and make a, being a disciple different from coming to Christ for salvation. And in John MacArthur's book, uh, Gospel According to Jesus, he says this, that no distinction has done so much to undermine the authority of Jesus' message than this, referencing this kind of distinction between discipleship and salvation in the Scriptures. And then he goes on to quote James Boyce in saying, this theology separates faith from discipleship, grace from obedience. It teaches that Jesus can be received as one's Savior without being received as one's Lord. This is a common defect in times of prosperity, in days of hardship, particularly persecution. Those who are in the process of becoming Christians count the cost of discipleship carefully before taking up the cross of the Nazarene. Preachers do not beguile them with false promises of an easy life or indulgence of sins. But in good times, the cost does not seem so high, and people take the name of Christ without undergoing the radical transformation of life that true conversion implies. And you've, you've probably heard it in churches or on radio stations or whatever, that we've kind of turned what we're going to see today when Jesus says things like, uh, uh, take up your cross, bear your cross and follow me. And, and today we've turned a, a call to discipleship into, uh, here's a couple uh, spiritual laws Pray this prayer after me and you're good. We've turned Jesus' calls that kind of confound us sometimes when He comes and He says to a man that asks Him how to have eternal life and He says, go sell all your possessions and give, them to, the poor, give to the poor and follow me. And we've kind of turned that and just tried to make it a little bit more palatable and just accept God's love for you and that's all you need to believe. And I, if you look through, I love reading through, I read through this whole biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and in the times of, of that he was living right before and during World War II, you get this, uh, this church in, in Germany that began to be molded into the state church, that began to be uh, uh, basically a church where the government said, here's some things you can't say, here's some things you can't, and there's some bunch of churches said, well, if we want to keep existing, we just have to go along with these. And they kind of came to this uh, gospel that really had no gospel in it. And in his, his book, uh, the, the Cost of Discipleship, he says this in his, this is too long to type out on my thing, so we're going to read it. He says of this, of the cheap grace is what he called it, going around uh, in Germany at this time. He says, cheap grace is the, the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he goes on and he describes his culture. I just, if you just let this kind of ring into what you might see around you today, this was staggering to read in a way. He says, but, 
Do we also realize that this cheap grace has turned back upon us like a boomerang? The price we are having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organized church is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available to all at all too low a cost. We have... We gave away the word and sacraments wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, and absolved a whole nation unasked and without condition. Our humanitarian sentiment made us give that which was holy to the scornful and unbelieving. We poured forth unending streams of grace, but the call to follow Jesus in the narrow way was hardly ever heard. Where were those truths which impelled the early church to institute uh, the, the catechumenate, sorry for that word, which enabled a strict watch to keep over the frontier between the church and the world and afforded adequate protection for costly grace. What had happened to all those warnings of Luther's against preaching the gospel in such a manner as to make men rest secure in their ungodly living? Was there ever a more terrible or disastrous instance of the Christianizing of the world than this? What are those 3,000 Saxons put to death by Charlemagne compared with the millions of spiritual corpses in our country today? With us, it has been abundantly proven that the sins of the fathers are visited upon by the children to the third and fourth generations. Cheap grace has turned out to be utterly merciless to our evangelical church. Sorry for the long quote, but if you let that sit in, it struck me we've baptized and given out this grace to a whole nation wholesale, unasked. Granted, that time is kind of fading away, but there's, there's a time not too long ago when there was upwards of 75, 80, 90% of this nation that would say, at least, profess that they're Christians. I think we've successfully done the same thing that he was warning us about back in the mid-1900s. If you turn to Luke 14, uh, if you haven't already, Jesus had a great multitude following Him. And when Jesus had a great multitude following Him, He did probably the opposite of what we would do if we began to have a great multitude following us. He says this in Luke 14. I'm just going to read this passage. And we'll go back. He said, verse 25... Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while, there, while the other is a... Yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
The first thing Jesus says when he looks around and sees a great crowd about him, coming to him, listening to him, flocking him, he says some things that I don't want us to lose the powerful effect that they would have had and should have, that if anyone does not comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm not going to advocate against the clear teaching of God's word here. He's not commanding us to go against God's law to honor your father and mother and to love your wife as yourself and so on and so forth. We know this. It's, I think it's probably better summed up in Matthew 10.37 where he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves brother and sister more than me is not worthy of me. So the parallel passages that get the same point, but they should both be just as equally staggering to us that when they come to Christ, He turns to a crowd and says to them, if you don't hate these family members, you cannot be my disciple. He's drawing a pretty clear line right from the beginning when people are flocking to him that he must have the preeminence of your heart's affections or no place at all. This last little phrase that you even have to uh, be willing to hate his own life kind of destroys Joyce Meyer's little theology that in order to love others, you have to love yourself first. The whole basis of some ministries is the reality that we need to look and feel better and love ourselves better. And here Jesus is saying, you have to, in light of your love for Me, be willing to even hate your own life. See, your own self is so, uh, as so low in comparison to your love and affections and gaze upon Me. He's setting a bar right from the beginning and then going to explain upon it that the bar is Jesus Christ must be the all in all, as the Scriptures say, or He's going to be nothing to you. And we've kind of brought along this weird idea that we can... What a lot of preachers, if you turn on TV, which I used to have a worse habit of doing, just to see what was out there in the world today. Then it frustrated me too much. I didn't want to know what was out there in the world today where you would have many people just encouraging, begging, pleading with their church people, just try Jesus. You see people almost like a beggar on the street corner. Please just try Jesus. Don't leave today unless you try Jesus. And Jesus turns to a crowd of people and says, you hate these people or just you might as well stop following me. I hope you see a little bit of a difference there. He goes on to say, if the bar is Christ at the highest affections of your life and your adoration, he goes on to say in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the the mark of someone who wants to come after Jesus is a bearing of his own cross. And this is not a cross of just your everyday trials and in, in, in sufferings of life. We don't want to reduce the bearing and taking up of a cross to just the, the illnesses that we may suffer or, or the noisy neighbors that are next door that irritate us or the woes and the, the things of life, of everyday life that bring us down. The bearing of the cross in the New Testament, in the, the Scriptures, is, is a very specific thing. That Warren Wearsby describes it like this. What does it mean to, to carry a cross? It means daily identification with Christ in shame, suffering, and to surrender to God's will. 
It means death to self, to our own plans and ambitions, and willingness to serve Him as He directs. Isn't it interesting that when people start flocking Christ, the second thing He says is that if you're going to be a disciple and continue following Me, it's going to include a cross-bearing which would have laid heavy on the ears of all these people, and what we know of Scripture should lay heavy on our ears, and that's not a pleasant experience. There's going to be suffering, persecution, and shame along with coming after me and being a disciple. And he's putting it right up front to these people. The New Testament does not hide the reality that to become a disciple of Christ, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. From the beginning of Paul's ministry in Acts 14.22, he encouraged the saints by saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's Paul's encouragement to a church that he's building and planting and growing. That in order to, to enter into this kingdom of God, it's going to be through trials, sufferings, tribulations. It's going to be through cross-bearing and shame. It's not going to be what you see today as a bunch of nice middle-class Americans coming to a rally and someone saying, just please try Jesus out. Believe in these couple facts. Go on your way. And please come back next Sunday. Right? This is something that doesn't come upon you, but he says to bear it. And in Luke 9.23, he says to take it up. Take up your cross. Bear your cross. We've, we've kind of lost this in... I don't think that we've lost this in the, in the, in the teaching of God's people, but we've lost this in the, in the invitation to become God's people. Jesus was just very upfront with a crowd of people what this life was going to entail. And contrary to, to many beliefs, Jesus did not leave His church here just to let people have a good time. He left His church for a mission to accomplish that could only be accomplished in one way. Paul describes his ministry like this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8-12. through 12. This is how he described his life of ministry. And he said this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus... Sorry, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul knew that to become a disciple and to spread the invitation of discipleship, there was one simple means. It was carrying a cross, being associated with shame and suffering in that association with Jesus that people would see the death of Jesus in in some way through Him and that the resurrection life that we just sung about a minute ago would come forth and bubble up to eternal life. That was the only way. The only way to come into discipleship of Christ and to spread discipleship of Christ. 
The great question is, how do we make disciples? That's what Jesus commanded us to do. Go into all the world and make disciples. It's through this. Bonhoeffer also said, when Christ bids a man come, He bids him come and die. And you get that from this. We're not, we're not begging the world to come into our churches by amusing them. That's what you see a lot. We're trying to attract sinners by, by amusement and all the great promises to just give us a try. But Christ, and therefore His followers, command men to come and die. And that kind of lays a foundation for the illustration He's about to give. It makes sense when you see him say to count the cost. It makes sense on the basis of the two statements he's just made. Because I don't want to lose the, the intensity of the two statements he just made. So verse 28 through 33 says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock at him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first, first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the third time. If you've followed the phrase here. If this, you cannot be my disciple. If this, you cannot be my disciple. If this, you, you cannot be my disciple. And he comes to this point and he gives two illustrations that basically say, from what I've told you, you ought to sit back before you, before you skip up and down and say yes, yes, and are like the, the seed in Jesus' parable of the sower that, that immediately springs up with joy, but when persecution comes, it, it loses, it fades away because it has no root in it. And before you spring up with joy, he says, count the cost and sit down and deliberate. This is the danger of, of trying to pick unripe fruit with Jesus never did. He wanted to make sure that a man in verse 33 renounced all that he has. And I want you to go, you know, think back up to the illustration of what Jesus just said. Think back up to the statements where he said, if a man does not carry his own cross, he cannot be my disciple. And realize that a man with a cross on his back, that's the only possession that he has. But he has nothing else to cling to. Because that cross is it. That cross leads to death and he has nothing else that he has in his hands at that moment. If a man does not renounce all that he has, and this is where I want to go back. I was going to do this at the beginning, but I thought this was a better place. If you look back at the context of this, this uh, uh, invitation of Christ to the beginning of, or not beginning, but earlier in this chapter, 
the previous section, starting in verse 15, Jesus gives a, uh, a parable, a lesson, uh, based on an invitation to come to a dinner, to dine with the king at this feast. And it's clearly going to be an invitation to come, a, a different illustration for the same invitation to come to Christ for salvation. And Jesus is going to give these statements of, of, of if you don't hate these family members and if you don't carry your cross and if you don't renounce all that you have, He's giving this just after He says this, and it will make a little bit more sense. In verse 15, Jesus is, is in a home teaching these people through this picture of being uh, uh, invited to a, a house for a feast, for having a feast. And in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread at the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet. He invited many. And at the time for the banquet, his, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please ha- have me excused. And another said, I have, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited, shall see my banquet. Now, last phrase is the the purpose of this illustration. It takes you back up to those three men that had much better things to do than to, to come at the call of Christ. So why does Jesus say you must hate your father and mother? And, and why does Jesus say you must... Bear your cross and follow me. Why does Jesus say that you must renounce all that you have if you want to be my disciple? It's in light of what he just said. There's three reasons why people make excuses not to come at the call of Christ. And he's dealing with those three excuses. So those three excuses also, if you flip back to Luke chapter 8, this is the greatness. I, I read all the way through uh, the, this, this book of Luke recently. And these threads, these threads are constantly throughout this book. And Luke's dealing with, with certain issues. And Jesus, through his teachings of Jesus, Jesus is dealing with these certain issues. And it's threaded through this book. And in Jesus' teaching of the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, just want to land, we, we've all heard this parable, and just want to land in verse 14. Because this third, this third ground and this third seed that, that, that grows up and is choked out by the weeds, Jesus is going to explain this part of the parable and says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. See the three things in this passage? At the beginning of this ministry, Jesus says to these people, 
there's three three weeds, three thorns that will come and they will choke certain certain people out. They'll choke them out to, to where they won't bear that fruit and reveals that that life was never truly inside of them. Because good trees bear good fruit. And bad trees bear bad fruit. And this is, is evidence that this good life was never inside of them because no fruit was ever produced. And these three things, he says, are the cares of this world and the riches of this world and the, or this life and the, the pleasures of this life. Right? The cares of this life. What did that first man say? The invitation to the wedding. I've bought a field. I must go and see it. This man came to the conclusion that I've just bought a land of real estate. I have something to attend to. And there's this in me that says, I have to go take care of this. I have to go right now, take care of this, and and this is going to preoccupy my mind. What I have just purchased, what I have back at my home, and this is the care and the worry of this life that has preoccupied him in such a way where he neglects the call of God to come to the wedding feast, to come to the feast of Christ. I always think it's interesting, these, these... these three things, this in particular, these people, these things here that Luke 14 brings out, he bought a field, he bought some oxen, married a wife, and there's nothing wrong with either of these three things in and of themselves. These three things are things that we all do, I was going to say all do every day, but I've never bought oxen. So the idea of these three things, we go and we buy real estate and, and we buy things for our labor, or for our work, we get married. And these things are, are things we all partake in. And it's interesting to me that in Luke 8, and if you go all the way back to Luke 6, Luke 6 through 16 is going to deal with these three avenues, these three ideas, and these three things, these cares of this life and riches of this life and pleasures of this life are going to continually be a thread through Luke's Gospel. These are the three things that are going to wrestle your soul and choke it out. These three things are going to be the things that keep you from the kingdom of God. These stand in the way of someone being a disciple of Christ. And you would say those aren't bad things. There's no drunkenness or thievery or murder in these things. But just don't lose the powerful impact of what we've looked at. These are the things which make the king angry. These are the things that choke out the fruit from coming forth. These are the things that Jesus says in Luke 14 must be done away with your preoccupation and your worrying in this life. This is why the New Testament says, cast all your anxieties on Him. This is why Jesus says, do not worry about your life. And He goes on and says, doesn't the the Father clothe the lilies? Doesn't He feed the birds? And why are we sitting back here thinking that if we don't go back and take care of our fields, then everything will lose everything. We have to go take care of these worries because if we don't, who will? And if if it doesn't get done, then some part of us will be lost. And I guarantee there's people in this room that might not have just bought a field but that have something preoccupying your mind that you have to take care of that keeps you from following Christ in discipleship and obedience. 
there's something that always preoccupies the preeminence of your mind, the cares of this life, something at home, something at work, something with our, our real estate investments, or something going on that preoccupies you from being able to follow Christ in obedience, to dive into His Word, to spend time with God in prayer, to truly follow after Christ. And Jesus says you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't be preoccupied with these things at home. You can't let them take precedence over your desire to follow after, follow in obedience to Christ. And he goes on and he says that the riches of this life are another, are another thorn that chokes it out. And what did the second man in Luke 14 say? He said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. The NASB says, I'm going to go test them out. Who doesn't want to go? They've just made a purchase and go see what he bought. If you bought a car, the first thing you probably want to do is go drive it. If you just bought something for work that's going to improve your, your labor or your business, the first thing you want to go do is to go see what it's all about and to make sure it's a wise investment. And, and this man, you have to imagine that he's doing this in order to see if he's going to make more money through this investment than he had before. He's going and he's, he's checking out his stocks here. The important thing is not that we ought not go buy things for work or we shouldn't go buy oxen or whatever. The point is the fact that this took preeminence and it took the place over him following after and responding to the call of Christ. This, these riches of life are what choked out any fruit from coming forth in these people's lives. And again, with one of the wealthiest nations of this world, it's probably easy to at least relate to something like this. This is why Jesus says, beware and be on guard against any form of covetousness in Luke 12. In Luke 6, He's warning against it. 8, He's warning against it. 12, He warns against it. 14, He warns against it. Luke 16, He warns against it. You can see the pattern through Jesus' ministry in Luke that He's coming to people and saying there's something that's going to be vying for your soul and it's going to be a pursuit of riches and wealth. And this is why Paul and Timothy says that the root of all evil is the love of money because this is something that will choke out any fruit. This is something that will hold people from responding to the call of Christ. This is why Jesus said clearly, unless a man renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. If we are more preoccupied with the things of this world, our pursuits at bettering, bettering ourselves at work of making more money, and if we, our mind is always wrapped around these things, again, to a point where it cuts us off from fellowship with God's people, from time in His Word, from pursuing Christ, you can't be His disciple. You can't be a disciple. This is why Jesus said, today's worries are enough. How often are you preoccupied with worrying and caring for what you're going to have tomorrow? How often have you maybe have left the house at night 
or in the evening or sometime during the day, neglected your time in the Word or neglected your time with family, neglected serving others or fellowshiping with the church because you have business work to do, because you have another way to make another dollar, because you're concerned that you won't be able to make ends meet, They must be renounced. All that he has must be renounced or you cannot be his disciple. You actually, here's a, a, a fun fact for you this morning. You own nothing that you think you possess in this world. You're simply a steward of everything that is in your name by God's grace to use for his glory But this is no surprise that this is the world trying to vie for your soul. In the last, he says that the pleasures of this life will choke out this fruit. And in Luke 14, you see a very simple, this is a good thing. Why would Jesus have an issue with someone saying, I've married a wife? A lot of us in this room have done that. But it's that second part of the phrase in Luke 14. He says, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. This is more important to me than whatever you are inviting me to do. This newfound relationship that I have is, is more, I have to be more focused and consumed with this than whatever this king is inviting me to. This is, this is putting the pleasures of life ahead of the following after Christ and discipleship. This is why Jesus said, you must bear your cross and follow after me. If you've ever looked back, I love great, uh, just little snippets of, of, of men's testimonies. And if you look back at the, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs was Richard Warmbrand. And he was also alive during this time of the middle, mid-19th. 1900s, and he was in Romania at this point where, at the end of the war, where these governments were trying to sort out this little territory, and these little territories in Eastern Europe, and Romania became this, this had this communist regime take over, and, and, and in order to gather around the, 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 the different faiths and, and different uh, uh, churches to kind of come and agree, similar to Germany, that, that we're going to cooperate with this communist government and what we teach and what we do and what we say. They got this council together, and Richard Warmbrand was one of them. And man after man stood up and basically pledged this allegiance to this government uh, at any cost, just so we could have some peace here. And I, I love... The, the wives of these men, and Richard's wife, Sabina, looked at him and said, are you going to wipe the smear off of Christ's face? He looks back at his wife and he says, if I do, you lose your husband. And I, I hope there's wives in here that have the courage to look back at their husbands in, in these types of instances and say what she said. She said, I do not wish to be married to a coward. valuing discipleship at any cost above anything, even this marriage. If you follow Richard Warmbrand, he spent, shortly after that, was arrested and spent 
a total of 14 years in communist prisons. First three years he spent in complete isolation, in solitary confinement with no light, no sound, no humans, not being able to see anything or anyone or hear anything. He spent the remainder of his time, <clears throat> along with that time, being beaten and tortured. In the middle of that time, they went and told his wife that he had died, and he had no way of correcting that. And at the end of this all, if you <laughs> he spent 14 years without seeing his wife or his children because he wanted to stand up he wanted to bear his cross and share in the suffering and shame of Jesus Christ. And if you look at that, I realize we're not in communist Romania or Nazi Germany, but if you look at that, it kind of makes it really, really silly, our flippant ways of evangelizing people today. It makes us, in our constant pursuit of pleasure and fun, look really stupid when you look at the cost, this was just less than a hundred years ago. See this last thing that he said that chokes you out, the pleasures of this life? I think that pretty much describes the trajectory of 99.9% of American citizens. It's what we're after. The pursuit of happiness and pleasure, fun, we want to satisfy the desires of our flesh. And we start this at a young age, basically subconsciously training children all the way through adulthood that Jesus left His church here to satisfy the pleasures and the, the, our desire for joy. The first thing we do when our kids come home from VBS is, did you have fun? Or they come home from summer camp and we say, well, did you have fun? Or they come out of wherever and then we come home from a conference as a teenager and say, did you, have, did you have fun there? And as adults, we, we kind of masquerade this worship time and many churches around our nation as, a, as basically an entertainment uh, a concert to amuse people because we think that people from a young age have to be amused and entertained in order to keep them involved in the church. And Jesus is saying, these are the very things that will kill the souls of many people. What gives life, and believe me, this may sound like a downer, but I know that Psalm 16 says that in His presence, there's a fullness of joy, and at His right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. Jesus knows, and I, I, I know that what brings forth true life and true joy and a true eternal satisfaction is understanding that it comes at a cost of renouncing all that we have and all our earthly ties and taking up a cross of suffering along with Christ. So if you flip to 1 Corinthians, this is kind of where... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, my last, last landing place, is Paul encouraging the Corinthian church in the exact same way. Sorry, we're not going to deal with a lot of the other things that are confounding in chapter 7. 
But there's one little, little chunk of this in verses 29 through 31. How ought we, what, what type of mindset does a person have that is a true disciple of Christ? And I think he deals with all three of these different, different, different uh, uh, things that Jesus has been dealing with in Luke in this little few verses where he says this in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29. He says, This is what I mean, brothers. For the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as, as though they had none. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. It's confusing. It's confusing to me too, but you have to look at these things. He's not saying that there's obviously not condemning having a wife or mourning or rejoicing or buying or dealing with the world, but what he's saying is there's a mindset that we have that affects how we live that we live as though, as though we had no wives, as though we were not mourning, as though we were not rejoicing. We, we live as the warm brands live, that yes, we, we love our, our spouses and we're committed to walk in obedience to Christ, to, to love and respect one another. But when, when it comes down to it, Christ has such a high place in our minds that I want to love my wife as Christ loved the church, lay my life down to her, but all the while realizing that this relationship that I have is a temporal relationship, but the relationship that I have with, with Jesus, the Lord of creation, is an eternal, everlasting, all-satisfying relationship that's the purpose of my existence. My marriage is, only has purpose in the context of both of us having this idea that we are coming together to bear our cross and to have this marriage resemble the relationship that we have with Christ. And as those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and there's things in this life that will come and cause mourning in our lives. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we don't mourn as the world mourns. We don't weep as they weep. Because we have hope. And that should be seen very evidently when those times of distress come our way. And as those that rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. We know that those, those things in life that come that, that are the blessings of God that we rejoice in or those things that, in life that come in this temporal life that cause for some rejoicing, we know that this is not the total fulfillment. That everything that we have is not going with us when we go. Which leads into those that buy as though they had no goods. Again, going back to, unless a man renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Paul says, buy, but as those that have no goods. What a mindset to have. Every time you spend a dime on something, this is God's and He could take it from me in a minute. He said in Luke chapter 12, even when a man has, has these, his life does not 
uh, it's not consisted in the abundance of what he owns. And those that deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Or kind of a better translation is those that deal with the world, those that are, use the world but do not make full use of it. The point is that there should be a dramatic distinction between how we operate in this very materialistic society and the way non-believers, non-disciples operate in this society. And this is kind of what's been just pressing in on me lately. It's just how am I using what God has given for His glory and how am I abusing or making full use of this world when I ought not to be because this is not my home. If it's true that we are citizens of heaven, that we are just passing through and sojourners here, that should be very clear. It was very clear in Jesus' ministry when he called people to himself and he says, are you sure you want to follow me? I don't have a place to lay my head tonight. And Paul's teaching us here that this is a vapor that we spend so much time buying and selling, that we spend so much time trying to build and invest And I feel like sometimes, maybe some of us in this room, myself included, have a tendency to lose sight of the fact that this life is a vapor quickly fading away and that I have a very, very short amount of time here to bear a cross and bring glory to my King. Right? This is why Jesus said, count the cost. This is the only way to follow Him. A man all... One time it was said that only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ shall last. And this is where you, you kind of at that, that last, sorry, I know I told you that was the last place, but Jesus finishes in, in Luke 14 by this, this idea of salt. And we'll just read this and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. For he, he ends this by saying salt is good. And I agree. But if salt has lost its taste, don't you look up that word someday. Outside of this context, it's used only in two other places in Scripture. Romans 1, 22, Paul says that through the wisdom of the world, they became foolish. They substituted the glory of God for the glory of beasts and four-footed creatures. He uses the same idea of foolish. This word for, for loses its taste literally means to become foolish, to cause to become nonsense, dull, sluggish, and stupid. And if salt that is good has become dull or nonsense, if the true church has completely lost the taste that it's supposed to have. How shall its saltiness be stored? It is of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It is either thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not only does Christ come to a crowd of people and say, These are the, the, this is the line. 
These are what's required of being a disciple after me. He ends this by saying, if the church, which is the salt of the earth, as he said in Matthew chapter 5, if it loses this flavor, this taste, this usefulness, it's not even good enough for soil or manure. Now just heavy on my heart that this word was God working over and over and over. How is my salt? How is my salt? Salt is good. And I want to be, as Matthew 5 says, people to see the good works. That I would serve the purpose in which I've been created here for. Salt has a purpose. And if it loses that purpose, it's useless. You and I have a purpose. And following after Christ as a disciple, we have a purpose. And I pray that none of us are those three people making excuses. That as we're gathering around here in a little bit and fellowshipping over a meal, that it would maybe take our minds to the fact that as every time we fellowship over a meal, it should take our minds to these images that Christ gives as... His invitation to salvation is fellowshipping, is coming to the the meal of Christ, coming to the supper of the King, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and and fellowshipping together. And may it kind of take our minds to to imagine that, to to think and dwell upon that, and to realize that that's where we want to be. And nothing's going to, to hold me here in the midst of that. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer together. God, thank You so much for this morning You've given us. Thank You that You are the King. Thank You that You have showed us, not only have You, have you come uh, to this earth in order to be the propitiation and to, and to proclaim this, this message of forgiveness of sins, but, but then Peter writes that, that as Jesus walked and as he, he suffered, He showed us an example of of what we ought to be, entrusting our souls to the faithful Creator. God, I pray that that we take the totality of Your Word and that we look at these calls of Christ to to come after Him and to, to follow Him. God, to be Your disciple. I pray that we would be a people that gladly and with joy Your Word says in Hebrews that that He's writing to these believers and these believers, they with joy, they joyfully accepted the seizure of their, seizure of their property and the, and the persecutions and imprisonment. May we with joy have our eyes set on the hope that is before us. Bear our cross and renounce all that we have and follow You till the end. And may this world that's around us in this community see, see a, a people and individuals that are clearly living for eternity. That are clearly following the... being a disciple of Jesus the Nazarene. We thank You for this morning, the time we have to fellowship. I thank You for this time we're about to have to fellowship. God, run a meal and that You would use every one of those times to remind us of the great call to Your Supper. And may we all be found there rejoicing over you and all that you have done and in your glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.